When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 142 of the Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris. This is the first episode for 2021. I took January off because I'm a slack ass and that's the way how I do things here. So glad to have your company. Welcome back to the show for the year. This is going to be a big year for the program because in the middle of the year, it'll be 10 years since I started recording this damn podcast. I'm still here. I haven't had the stupidity to give up. And also, if I don't slacken off, we're actually going to hit the 150 episode mark. So a couple of nice little milestones for the program. Not sure what I'm going to do to celebrate them, but I'll probably do something. Also, I hope that you're enjoying the sound on recording on this lovely, sexy new AKG Lyra microphone, sounding pretty sexy to my ears, hoping it's sounding sexy to yours. I have on the other end of a Zoom connection. We're not doing Skype this time around. We're doing Zoom. Is a wonderful fellow out of Los Angeles, and he's someone who I've long admired through his podcast appearances on Ben Eisen's all-time top 10 podcast, but he's also musician, songwriter, and I think in a little bit of my research that he went for a while by the name of Sexy Sexy Joe Lavelle. Uh, we'll have to ask him some questions about that. Joe Lavelle, welcome to Love That Album. Hey, how are you doing? I'm happy to be here. Uh, well, I'm happy to have you on the show. We've uh, been talking about this for about a year or something like that, but only doing, one, only doing one episode a month means that it takes a while to get to this sort of thing. I'm just glad that I got on before you hit your 10-year mark. If I hadn't gotten in within the first 10 years, I'd have been upset. I would have felt slighted had that been the case. You're part of a long line. Well, maybe not long line, but a medium-sized conga line of other all-time top 10 people. So I'm gradually stealing the finest guests on all-time top 10. So I've had Ben and Shannon themselves, obviously. We've had Mr. David Daskal. Oh, sorry, I should say Sir David Daskal. Uh, we've, <laughs> we've had Jeff Perlman. 
on the show only once. Is I'm struggling to get him to come on for a second time. He's a busy, busy fellow. And, and now your good self. It, it just seems that Ben has a wide range of great musical friends who also have the gift of the conversation. Yeah, it's a, a good combo. When you are a musician, it's never a surprise that you also have musician friends. So, I mean, he's so involved in music that it makes sense that he would have musician friends, but uh, he's got musician friends who can talk, mm. which uh, not all of them can. Uh, uh. <laughs> None of those people on this show, no. So before we sort of get into talking a little bit about your background, I should probably say for the listeners who haven't looked at the title of this episode on their podcast app of choice, Joe and I are going to be talking this time around about an album that we both love. And we'll discuss a little bit later on how we came to discover that we both loved this album. But we're going to be talking about Michael Nesmith, He of the Woolen Hat. And the, <laughs> the first album that he recorded after the Monkees, or at least after he left the Monkees, with his new band, well, his new band then, the first national band, the album was called Magnetic South. So we'll be talking about that album and probably a little bit about the albums that he did after that and about liquid paper or tipex or whatever they called it all sorts of mike nesmith and monkey related things that's the focus of this show but before we get to talking about that i want to know sexy sexy joe lavelle (laughs) i want to know a little bit about your musical background now i only found that about that earlier stuff last night but when you'd mentioned on a previous show or ben had mentioned on a previous all-time top 10 about your work with the brandy sidecar i went and looked up a little bit about that and you're doing some good old 19 40s jazz sort of, tor- I don't know, would you call it torch songs? How would you describe it? Stylistically, I, I relate them to old standards, but I can't call them standards because they have not become standards yet. But it was the songwriting style that I wanted to draw from. I certainly adore jazz music, but it wasn't that I wanted to you know, write jazz music. I wanted to write songs in the style that George Gershwin and Cole Porter and Jerome Curran and Rodgers and Hart, I wanted to write in that style. And not every interpretation of a George Gershwin song is necessarily a, a jazz performance either. So my ideal for the Brandy Side Car Project is I want to record the songs you know, to get them out there so that they will be known by people. But my ideal deal has always been that song stylists would discover these songs that I've written and then kind of do their own thing with it. I'm still struggling just to get the songs out there to begin with, but I'm just talking about, you know, how I dream of the project being, you know, I would just kind of get the songs out there and then my hope would be that other people would latch on and, and want to do their thing. That's, I write with that in mind. I'm spending the holidays with people I love. Can't be everywhere Some folks will be missed If someone else were paying I'd hop on a plane But the spread of cheer this year will be minimalist Still I've got no complaints So notwithstanding the times that we're living in Was the Brandy Sidecar ever a live performance project Or purely just something for you to record? No, I certainly would would love to have some live performances The reason there have not been is the same reason why The recording of the project is so slow going There's a three song EP that's out I've been working on a full length album for several years now It's expensive and to do the live shows would be expensive I kind of finally figured out a way to talk about this 
sounds like I'm not putting myself down. When I first started talking about the project and I would go off on this part, people would say, oh, no, man, I'm aware of where my talents lie. And I know so many wonderful musicians that are songwriters that are also brilliant on their instrument and they're brilliant with tech stuff and they set up their home studios and they'll put out, you know, I don't want to say it's easy for them to put out, you know, their own self-produced album, but it's a lot easier for them than it is for me. I play guitar, I, you know, kind of clunkily. With these songs, what I do is I'll write the song and then I go to Mike Flanagan produced that three song EP. So he's who I've worked with mostly with this project. I show up to the studio with my guitar and I kind of clunk through and I try to put in some jazz chords here and there, but it's known that immediately the next thing that's going to happen is that he's going to then pick up a guitar and play over everything that, and just remove everything that I did. And then he puts in passing chords and makes the chord structures a little bit more interesting. The bass level of the songwriting is me expressing myself and then it's a matter of getting it to sound good. So then you know, we bring in other you know, musicians doing horns and strings and and then we bring in real actual singers. I've sung in front of crowds before, but it's uh, I'm not a vocalist in the way that you would need to be to do this project. So my guitar playing, my singing, I'm not putting myself down. It's just saying, you know, where are your specific talents? You know, I can't do this style of music in the way that I want it to sound for the audience. So mm. I have to depend on other people. And I'm very lucky that I've got such talented friends that are working for very generous friends rates. But even at friends rates, I mean, it's a lot of hours. And you know, these are people who do need to be compensated for their time. You know, I don't have a whole lot of money. So, you know, I get some money, you know, socked away. And then I bring people in and we record some and then I kind of let them go their, their way. And the amount of money that I would have to spend to do a live show, including paying people to rehearse ahead of time. At this point, I only think about how much could I have gotten recorded for that much money. <laughs> so right now, it's definitely not a priority when I've got a full album ready to share with the world, then I would like to be able to put on a show to promote it. The music, as it sounds to me, sounds like you'd need to have the sort of concert where you got the gents dressed up in tuxedos and all their finery and the ladies in beautiful satin gowns. And it had looked like one of those 1920s, 1930s jazz orchestra type things where they each got their own stands and it'd be the full production. And that would run into some coin, I imagine. It would indeed. It would indeed. I'm not saying it'll never happen, but it'll be expensive. And, you know, the people who show up and pay $10 at the door, everybody's $10 added up is not going to come close to how much I would have <laughs> paid right. out right. to put it on. But I'll, I'll, I'll do it anyway, because mm. that is a dream of mine to see it happen that way. All right. Well... What we're going to do now is Joe Lavelle and I are going to have a quick break while Joanne gives you, as in my Joanne, not Mike Nesmith's Joanne, will give you the details for how you can download other episodes of this show and how you can get in contact with us on the socials, how you can email us, all that good stuff. So we'll be back in a couple of moments to be talking about Mike Nesmith and the First National Band. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 142. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. 
Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. And we're back from break. Morris over here in Melbourne, Joe Lavelle over there in Los Angeles, and we're going to be talking about Michael Nesmith, he of the woolen hat, he of the Tipex liquid paper descendancy, ex-monkey, video pioneer, and leader of the first national band. We're going to be talking specifically about his album Magnetic South. Our eureka moment for recording this episode was after I did an all-time top 10 episode about a year or 13, 14 months ago or something like that, where the subject matter was all-time top 10 cathartic albums. And so that show discussed albums that had been made by its creators after difficult circumstances. They faced all sorts of horrible circumstances in their life, death, accidents that left them crippled for life, all sorts of things. And one of my picks was an album that didn't have anything at least earth-shatteringly horrible. It was a celebration of having been released free of contractual obligations and to be able to show the world what these performers could do. And that was The Monkees and their third album, Headquarters. You got in contact with me and said, wow, I'd never have thought of that as a cathartic album. Brilliant suggestion. And then we sort of got into this conversation backwards and forwards about how we love The Monkees and what we thought about the brilliance of Headquarters and Pisces, Capricorn, Aquarius, Jones, and all those other good monkey things. And then I thought, well, hang on, you're someone who I admire on the all-time top 10. Let's have some monkey-related talk. And I've already gone and done early on in the podcast life, those two monkey albums that I just mentioned. So I thought, well, let's do the next logical thing and let's talk about Mike Nesmith and the First National Band. And you'd gone and sent some photos of yourself having been out with friends at the Redux First National Band gigs, which left me completely envious and green. I just want to interject because I feel like I should take credit for this. And I would like to be an example for others to do similar things. Those friends that I were with were certainly friends. They're people who I absolutely love, but uh, more to the point, they're my nieces who I you know, made sure they were raised on wonderful pop culture. To be able to see Michael Nesmith for them, you know, both of them just barely 20, they were absolutely thrilled. Uh, you know, to be going to Michael Nesmith's shows. And when the older of the two of them was uh, 18, for her 18th birthday, I took her and her sister to see the Monkees perform. That was the first tour that they'd done of Mickey, Peter, and Mike. This was just after Davy Jones had died. Right. And um, it was the best 18th birthday present she could ever imagine, just because that's who she is, because I had kind of been an influence as they were growing up. And they watched all my Monkees DVDs and you know, listened to the records and the two of them, you know, I remember when they were like 15 and 13, walking past their bedroom door, which was slightly ajar. And the two of them were singing the monkey song Going Down, which has the very ah. rapid lyrics. And it's, you know, that kind of challenge to yourself of can you sing all of the lyrics? Children in the river with a saturated liver and I wish I could forgive her, but I do believe she meant it when she told me to forget it. And I bet you will forget it when they find me in the morning, wet and drowned. And the world gets round. Going down. 
And I did that when I was 13 to challenge myself to see if I could sing all the lyrics and if I could still breathe while trying to catch every word. And so, you know, then they're at that age and they were doing it as well. I thought this is how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to move the monkeys forward generation by generation. Wasn't there a, an attempt at a TV show called The New Monkeys or something like that in the 90s? No, not. It was shortly after, maybe about a year or two after the 20th anniversary tour in 1986. Okay. So this would have been like 87, 88 or so. I guess whoever was the legal heir of Screen Gems, you know, had the rights because you know, the monkeys didn't form themselves. Mm. So somebody had the right to the name, that, the idea of the monkeys. And they thought, well, we can do the new monkeys. And there's no legal trouble because we have the rights. So we make a new TV show. And I watched a few episodes and I heard some of the music and nothing was bad. It just wasn't spectacular. And everybody kind of knew that there's really no connection here. There's there's nothing to say that, well, if you like the monkeys, you're going to love the new monkeys. There's no basis for that. So it just kind of fizzled. It was just a brand name. Yeah. So I've got to ask you, did you ever get to see any of the earlier reunions? Like I, mean, I know that in the mid-80s, we had Peter and Davey come to do a show, which was more like a cabaret thing because they had a local band and it was more like cabaret rather than rock musicians. But it was still wonderful to see them. But in that period, I think there was the album Pool It and then a few years later was Justice and there were various combinations. It was never the quartet until a lot later. The first reunion tour, there were a few isolated shows where Mike Nesmith showed up. I don't think they did a tour for the album Justice. And if they didn't, then there was never a full tour with all four of them. During the original reunion, there were just a few isolated shows. Mike showed up and you know, got on stage for some songs. And then like I said, I don't know about the Justice album. I don't remember there being a tour, but if there wasn't, then Mike wasn't back with the band until after Davey died. You know, somebody on the internet now is typing furiously to explain <laughs> that there was a Justice tour or to explain why there wasn't a Justice tour in one way or the other. As long as I keep it polite, I'm happy to be educated. But one of my great concert regrets of all time is during the first reunion tour. Now, we, you and I don't have a huge age gap, but for talking about the monkeys, it's probably significant. I was 11 in 1986 for the 23 Union in Hullabaloo. So they had been on TV when I was very young. When people talk about early childhood memories, it just blows my mind because I don't have early childhood memories. But when I was 11, I remembered that I had seen the show on TV. I was only alive for 11 years at this point. So it's not like it was a super long time ago. But to me, as an 11-year-old, it was like, oh, this was way back when I was a little kid. We turned on the TV, switching channels, and it was like in the middle of a Monkees episode. I hadn't gotten the hype yet. I didn't, didn't realize this 20th anniversary thing was happening. That's why the TV show was back on the air and the albums were being re-released. And there was a new Greatest Hits album with new songs on it. I hadn't gotten in touch with that yet. We were just flipping channels. We found the Monkees after the introduction, just like, mid-episode, and I was able to draw from my mind on my own that the name of the group was The Monkees. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about them in years, but I remembered this from, you know, I'm an 11-year-old thinking, oh, from back when I was a little kid, I remember seeing you know, this on TV. It was The Monkees. And I immediately loved it. I thought that I just randomly found it on TV, and then soon enough, I found out that it was because of the 20th anniversary, and there was a tour and everything. And I started saying this was one of my great concert regrets. The Monkees did a few shows during that 20th anniversary tour when their opener was Weird Al Yankovic. Wow. And uh, when they played Philadelphia, they played the Man Music Center and I couldn't go because you know, the 
terrible things that happened to children. My family had planned a trip to Disney World during that same time. And I thought, oh, I have to go to Disney World. You know, it's no great tragedy. But still, I couldn't help but think Weird Al and the monkeys on the same bill and I can't go. And I found out afterwards that one of our close family friends who was one of our regular babysitters, one of our favorite babysitters, had asked my mom about, I'd like to get tickets and take Joe to see the show because I know that he'd like it. And then my mom had to tell her, no, we have this trip planned, can't go. So it wasn't just, you know, this wishful thinking of an 11-year-old. I actually could have gone to that show if, if our family vacation had been some other time. But I did end up seeing them later in the 80s. So I saw the Mickey Peter Davies show. Uh, I think I saw that twice in the 80s. And then I saw Mickey, Peter, and Mike seven or eight years back when they did that tour. I didn't see any of the Mike and Mickey shows, but I've seen Michael Nesmith a few times now. And I've seen uh, Peter Tork a number of times in small clubs. Just him in a guitar or him in a piano or something? He had a guy that he used to do shows with a lot called James Lee Stanley. And they would perform together going back and forth doing songs and singing together and some their own songwriting and then they would also do covers so i saw the two of them a few times he had a blues band called shoe suede blues that was um <laughs> it they kind of, they drew from like the the blues music that like the jump blues that like immediately preceded rock and roll so not like the old you know mississippi delta type stuff so he would perform pretty regularly at a spot in santa monica and i, I don't know how many times i saw him saw him there but it was a good time he always put on good shows all right so where do you go from being a monkeys fan to deciding that you're going to give a listen to the first national band there are similarities in some ways which we'll get into but also it's a step in a different direction was it like oh that monkey he's gone and done this stuff as well i guess i better listen to that or did you just happen to hear the album and then oh that's mike nesmith what was your introduction to first national band it, it was kind of slow because a lot of that stuff wasn't in print wasn't easily available in the mid 80s when the monkeys reunion happened michael nesmith or somebody on his behalf put out two greatest hits albums of his solo work one was called the older stuff and one was called the newer stuff and the newer stuff was late 70s and the older stuff was early 70s and both of them had good songs on them they just they weren't particularly wonderful compilations you know when you consider everything that they could have drawn from so it was good enough that i knew that i liked it but they weren't good enough to really give me an idea of just how great the full albums must have been so i took an interest but you know, didn't really go out and seek anything out but as time went on and i was more connecting to the monkeys by listening to them rather than watching the shows over and over again i was just really kind of locking into michael nesmith as a songwriter the other three of them did write songs during the run of the monkeys but you know mike was of the four of them was the one that was a prolific songwriter and i was always surprised when i would find out that there was a mike song that he didn't write the what am i doing hanging around mm -hmm. was you know a big one on the tv show and i just assumed that mike had written that that was written by michael martin murphy one of my favorite monkeys songs is the door into summer which was written by nesmith's buddy bill martin who shows up up in some of Nesmith's uh, comedy stuff with the elephant parts. With his boots stacked up all around him From a killing in the market on the lawn The children looking might as there As they found him in his counting house Where nothing counts but more 
wonderful song that I just assumed Nesmith had written. But for the most part, he did write you know, the songs that he performed, and he wrote wonderfully. And when I was very young, Mickey was my favorite monkey because I was watching the TV show, and Mickey was the one whose humor I connected to the most. As I matured and began to understand dead hip hand humor, and as I began to understand how valuable a great straight man is, then I started to realize how great Mike is as a comic actor. But when I was 11 years old, it was, you know, Mickey was the one that was my favorite. And gradually, Mike became my favorite. But the thing with favorites, especially when you're kind of coming of age, a favorite is a truth. Like right now, if I change my mind about my favorite of something, I just change my mind about my favorite. But when you establish a favorite, when you're you know, in adolescence, that's a part of who you are. That's a truth. And if you're going to change your favorite, you have to have a reckoning. You have to have an understanding of like, wait a minute, I'm changing years here. So my favorite became Mike, but I didn't have that reckoning yet. And when I was in college, there was a woman who I was very much in love with, and it was always unrequited. We had a wonderful, friendly relationship, but she was never in love with me like I was in love with her. And uh, her favorite was Mike. And I said to her, oh yeah, Mike's my favorite too, which was true, but I hadn't had the reckoning yet. So when I said it, it didn't feel like a truth. I was just so mad at myself. I thought, well, if I had been able to say it and have it sound real, then you know we would have really connected, which of course, you know I'm sure that had no reason, you know, nothing to do with why we didn't connect romantically. But I, I believe <laughs> that um, if I had had my reckoning and had come to terms with the fact that Mike was my favorite, then we would have had a real connection there. <laughs> So let's move on to the notion of country rock. Mike Nesmith is often put into that whole camp of what country rock is. And, you know, we look at that whole time about where that came in as a definition. You've got bands like the Flying Burrito Brothers and the International Submarine Band, which were Graham Parsons things. And, you know, he's considered, I guess, the godfather of it all. But, you know, you've got the Birds before that and you've got the Everly Brothers before that could be argued. That's country rock. And you've got Dylan and the band and it could be argued that, well, Elvis Presley was country rock and anything on Sun Records could have been argued as country rock. But when I listen to something like Sweetheart of the Rodeo, that sounds to me like an out-and-out country album, not a country rock album. So it'd be good to be able to sort of say, how can we define what is country rock? I mean, there are even moments where bands that were not put in that bag, like the Beatles and the Stones, they dabbled with country and it sounded rocky, but is that country rock? Despite the fact that Mike Nesmith and the first national band are not the first band to be under that definition, but they're certainly very, very important. And if you go back to Mike's song's in the monkeys, as you've already sort of gone and mentioned, a lot of those were the more country flavored songs. And in fact, there's those three compilations, which I sort of haven't listened to as much as the earlier albums, but the ones called Missing Links, where there's a ton of the songs that were like a repository for the songs that he'd written, but they didn't see fit to put on a monkeys album because 
whoever it was that came to those decisions said, enough of this country shit, Mike, just do the pop stuff. But it was in his head. And I often sort of think that, well, because those songs were done by Nashville musicians rather than the LA wrecking crew that they normally, they actually sound more straight ahead country, if that makes any sense. And the stuff on the first national band in certainly from the Loose Salute albums and Nevada Fighter albums and certainly the second national band sound like he's going exploring more of the rock side. And But this first national band album, there's a bit of a rock side. There's, there's a lot of things going on on that album. There really is. I don't know if I want to have the tangent first or the tangent after we talk about country rock. I have a few things to say about country rock. Sure. Uh, but as far as uh, there being a lot of different things on the, the first national band, the first record, the one that we're talking about, there really is a lot of, of different stuff happening on the record. And there was a recent episode you talked about, and I don't know if you agree with me in terms of Magnetic South, but you talked about some albums have a, a calling card as a first opening track. Yes. And I really think Calico Girlfriend is a calling card because it's got that Texas two-step mixed with Samba kind mm. of a feel to it. And I don't know who was anticipating Mike's first record, but it was definitely anticipated in some way, either by Monkeys fans or just music people in general knew that, okay, what's he going to do now that he's not a monkey? And you start off with that first track and it doesn't sound like the Monkeys. It doesn't sound like the birds. It doesn't sound like the Finding Burrito Brothers. It's kind of an announcement to me that he says, you know what? Don't think about what you expect this is going to be. Just let me take you on a ride. Me and my calico girlfriend Starting a set of new rules Watching the stars as they drop in Making the nights I'm a fool And then you can decide afterwards how you felt about the ride. I agree very much in that regard that it that song is a calling card because it's saying I'm going to be doing something a little bit different to what you expect and yet there's a bunch of songs on this album that I think well I mean they were recorded under the monkeys moniker but given they recorded by Nashville musicians they sound less monkeys than this the way how those arrangements sound on the first national band album but I think a song like Calico Girlfriend could have been recorded by the Wrecking Crew or but the Crippled Lion sounds to me like it could have fitted in on one of the first two or three albums if it had been recorded by the Wrecking Crew as the backup band or even on headquarters if the Monkees themselves had chosen to make their own arrangements. Something very McCartney-esque, something very monkey-esque, if that makes any sense about that. So yes, that song is a calling card to say, hey, I'm doing something different. The country aspects that you heard on what am I doing hanging around and other country-flavoured Mike Nesmith songs, I'm still doing something in the vein. I've got a foot in either camp, but be prepared. So yes, very much. Yeah, The calling card analogy certainly works for this album. Having said that, it could have applied to maybe nearly any song, but I like the fact that they've gone with Calico Girlfriend. And once again, we'll come more to that, but now that we're on that path, I like that they chose something up-tempo. I mean, imagine if they'd gone and done One Rose, if they'd opened up the album with that, that would have given you a completely different aspect. Oh, is this what I'm going to be getting? Is this 
Texas balladry, you know, a Jimmy Rogers song. Yeah. The album to me is, with a couple of exceptions, is an album about regret, an album about love that's been lost. There are other songs that cover other subject matter, but ostensibly it is an album of love gone wrong or love unrequited. And Calico Girlfriend says... I'm going to fool you into thinking that this is going to be a happy album. I've got a few things to say about the themes. Now, see, I wonder now if I'm regretting going on the tangent before. I wanted to rant a little bit about the idea of country rock. Go for it. Certainly, obviously, it's ridiculous to kind of pin down who invented it. You know, I hear that discussion and that's no genre of music is invented in one specific moment by one specific person. I'll just not even dignify that, you know, as to who it was that invented country rock rock. But the other reason why the idea of the invention of country rock is silly to me is because rock and roll historians or popular music historians have always so often described rock and roll as being born out of the fusion of R&B and country. So if you had to have country infused to begin with, then the idea of someone then having to invent country rock is an even more ridiculous kind of thing to discuss. It's something that had always been in. And I think part of the reason why the rock and roll historians emphasize that, you know, it's R&B and country, which I'm not saying that's not a valid description. I think it is a valid description, how it came together in the early years. But I think why they emphasize it so much is because the published historians, you know, when people first started writing about rock and roll, were white men, and they had to have whiteness be important to rock and roll in some way. And that's why they will, like, argue that Bill Haley and the Comets Rocket 88 was the first rock and roll song instead of the previously recorded Ike Turner Rock and Roll Rocket 88. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. As if Bill Haley could be influenced by R&B, but Ike Turner couldn't have been influenced by country, which, of course, he grew up with country music all around. Of course, that kind of seeped into what he was doing. But, you know, the rock historians, of who, of course, you know, we always get it written about by white men, needed to say that, well, rock and roll was R&B and country coming together. I feel like they had to assert the importance of whiteness about it. And my idea is that by the time you get to, you know, a decade into rock and roll, a decade and a half of rock and roll, people were saying, oh, now there's something called country rock. And it's not like I don't know what people are talking about when they say country rock, but the cynic in me kind of says that country rock was inevitable the more that white people kept trying to play rock and roll, that you were going to get country rock because the Eagles were never ever going to be able to do what Little Richard did. Right. It was going to be whitened. That's my rant about you know whether or not it's important to determine who invented country rock or what it is as a genre. I think it was always part of rock and roll and that it was just kind of a natural progression. Yeah, we do like our categorizations. And I read an interview with Mike Nesmith where he said it was not so much about the music, but about the attitude. And if rock and roll was always supposed to be that form of rebellion, and I have my qualms about it being a form of rebellion because, you know, how can you stick it to the man on the hill when you're signing contracts and going on big record labels? But that's a conversation for another yeah. day. Yeah. Mike Nesmith had said that it was as much about the attitude as 
the music. And if he's basically saying, right, well, I've bought my way out of my monkey's contract. This is what I want to do. I'm sticking the finger to you. So it's as much I want to do country music. And I just happen to like these other musical elements that I can throw yeah. in there because it's uh, it's like I'm a musical chef. It's a stew. And I want to have the samba and I want to have a little bit of funk. And there's a funk element on a, a couple of the songs on this album, as well as what we typically think of as straight ahead country and Red Roads, which we'll probably discuss as well, has a large part of the country sound of this album. And I think another reason why people like feel the need to discuss country rock is because I think that so many rock fans don't want to admit to themselves that there's some country music that they like. So basically, if it's country music that they don't hate, they want to call it country rock. <laughs> so much of what people call country rock, I'm just thinking to myself, that's just country, man. Yeah, which comes back to my original thing of what I said before about Sweetheart of the Rodeo sounding to mm-hmm. me like just an out-and-out country album. That just happened to be recorded by a band that had gone and done psychedelia and great rock and pop tunes. But they say, well, now he's our country up. I almost think it's a disservice to Graham Parsons when people talk about him as country rock. There's just some of the best country records ever. I mean, that's the best, most beautiful country music that I ever want to sit down and listen to. Mm. I'd rather call him, you know, one of the best country musicians than I feel like you're not really honoring where he came from if you feel like you have to call it country rock. I like also the fact that there are musicians who don't do what we think of as country music, who he definitely had an influence. On so I've got this great tribute album to Graham Parsons called Return of the Grievous Angel, and you've got besides I guess Emmy Lou Harris, who was his muse and was obviously going to be on that, but you've got the Pretenders on that album, and you've got Elvis Costello on that album, and Wilco, who I guess in their early days were what we'd think of as country rock. Their AM album is definitely continuing on from the Uncle Tupelo vein, and uh, there was that whole thing in the nineties about alt country, and there's another label unto itself, but it's rock musicians possibly who liked country sounds and I hear what you're saying about it's possibly doing a disservice but I also sort of like the fact that the people in the in the musician fraternity as opposed to just people who go out and buy the records just like to listen yeah these are people who have their ears open to everything and Jeff Tweedy he loved his country music but he didn't want to sit still and every Wilco album went somewhere different you like a moon that's full Across the sea of foam I'm the sky You've been burning Coming back to what I mentioned about Mike Nesmith said about the music being as much about the attitude as anything. I know that probably a lot of people out there are sort of saying, hey, idiots, you haven't mentioned outlaw country. And there's no <laughs> rock and roll element in that, but that is certainly attitude. So your Chris Christophersons and Willie Nelsons and the like, part of this outlaw country movement, Waylon Jennings, that doesn't sound particularly rocky. And yet a lot of what they did was basically rebelling against the twee sounds of 
where Nashville had gone in the 60s. And there's also the Bakersfield sound. But that was also about giving the finger to what had become very twee. Also, just sort of thinking about attitude, Nesmith seemed to be the one who's most identified out of all the monkeys with kicking against the establishment. There was that story about him telling Don Kirshner after he punched a hole in the wall, that was supposed to be where your head was. Um, Yes. But obviously all the monkeys were sort of tired of being manipulated and wanted to be taken seriously as a band, as musicians, regardless of whether they were just singing or whether they were actually playing instrumentals on their album. I mean, thinking about that moment in Head, I mean, Head itself is a big F you to exactly to the musical fraternity and the Hollywood fraternity. Hey, hey, we are the monkeys. You know we love to please. A manufactured image with no philosophies. That is their rebellion. So where was this going with country rock? I guess it, it puts pay to what, yeah, Mike's assertion that country rock was as much about giving the finger as it was about how it sounded to the listener's ears. You know, as to uh, speaking to the idea of rebellion about against the idea of what the monkeys had originated as, Nesmith, it's really clear that he was thinking about his post-monkeys ventures from before he even agreed to sign on as the, uh, for the monkeys. It was like he had this very forward thinking, you know, where's this all going to go? And like, what contacts am I going to make while doing this monkeys gig? You know, who am I going to meet and be able to work with? And you know, whose money am I going to get to spend? He kind of saw from the very beginning that, well, we're auditioning for a TV show, but they're going to promote this as a band. So how are we going to handle that when it comes up? And his earliest songs that he did with the monkeys, he insisted on having Peter Tork come in and play in addition to the Wrecking Crew people. You know, Tork just play bass here or there or just do something just to, to kind of make that connection early on to the idea that this will be a band at some point. And then, like I said, you know, during the Monkees, he was kind of making relationships with musicians and figuring out, you know, how he's going to set himself up to be able to record after the Monkees. And what I absolutely love about Mike is you can see his original screen test for the Monkees. You can find it online. It was actually was tagged on to the end of one of the original Monkeys episodes. You know, they just, for the fans, hey, won't this be curious to, to check this out? What I love about it is he's auditioning the producers. He's not auditioning for them. He's there to decide whether or not he wants to do this TV show. He's not going in hoping that they'll pick him. And he's not really taking them all that seriously. You can tell that there's a part of him that thinks, yeah, this could be good for me, but it's not like, fingers crossed, hope I get this. And, you know, he just kind of wants to know what the terms are going to be. And he's deciding in this moment, you see it on his face. He's deciding whether or not he wants to allow them to put him in this show rather than, oh, I hope that they do. Mm. He's auditioning them. He's kind of getting to know who they are, what they're going to expect of him. He's thinking about his career. He's not thinking about that one career move. So he always had that from the very beginning. It just really stands out as part of who he was. That really makes complete sense to me because he was always one step ahead from a visual side as well as what he wanted to do with the music besides head which i guess was the inevitable rock band
band has to make a movie. That was a thing at a time, not yeah. so much nowadays, but it was a thing back then. But then there was that 33 and a third revolutions per monkey, which was then. That's weirder than head is. I can't even watch it all the way through. That just, <laughs> that freaked me out. I think I told that to Ben one time. That just weirded me out. And of course, I had no idea who what Brian Auger and Julie Driscoll. I don't know how many Monkees fans at the time knew who they were, but I'm sure a lot of them didn't know who they were. And it was just like, who are these people? Why are they part of the show? Certainly, but you think you can make a man out of that one? Well, I'll see what I can do, darling. I only watched for the first time this week Elephant Parts. I do remember like back in the early days of VHS tapes and libraries and all that, seeing a big poster in my local video shop. So this had been on VHS and I think I even recall one of my friends who was an early adopter of technology might have even had a laser disc of it. But I only got to see that for the first time this week as prep for this show. It makes sense that he did that. We'll, we'll come in a moment for how this was obviously a pioneering move. But just the humor in that, Mike had said in an interview that he never regretted being a monkey. I think a lot of people were sort of under the impression that there was the camaraderie, obviously, between the four of them and the fact that they've sort of done these reunion tours and often donned and where they've done these interviews. That seems pretty obvious to me that they were friends and that they enjoyed each other's company. But I think he never regretted, at least as how I understood what he said in this interview, he never regretted the experience of being a monkey. It taught him much. And if you look at that sort of irreverence that they have in the TV shows, and when you look at Elephant Parts, his video from, is it 79 or 80 or whatever it was, that seems to be a continuation of that sort of what we call here a piss take of television shows and pop culture in general. I remember sort of like I think in the early 80s, what we thought of as being a big pioneering move in terms of video albums was from the San Franciscan band, The Tubes, who I absolutely adore. And they'd gone and released like a VHS tape just called The Tubes Video, which is basically a visual representation of their then album, The Completion Backward Principle. But that had a couple of songs from the first album, the big iconic song, White Punks on Dope and Mondo Bondage. But we thought that that was where the future of albums was going to be. The, the whole video album concept that they and Russell Mulcahy had gone and invented that. But I'm pretty sure that Elephant Parts came before that. Now, I don't know that the video album came to be a big thing beyond that, but certainly looking at those, the, the musical moments as well as the comedy moments in the show. It's more surreal in a way than traditional American TV show, variety show, comedy sketches. It's not your Donnie and Marie or it's not your Carol right. Burnett. It's not Carol right. Burnett show. It's wonderful as I love Carol Burnett. But there's a surreal element to it, which is something that the Monkees, I guess, had pioneered years before. And I know that the Monkees TV show gets often slagged on as being not that funny, not that great. And yeah, there are some episodes which I don't think are that great, but there are some which I think absolutely fantastic and what they were aiming to do still sort of works for I me. Mean, I see a continuation of that in Elephant Parts. And I guess it's rather my long way of saying is that when Mike says he has no regrets about the monkey's days, Elephant Parts made 10 years or so after his last episode of the monkeys is evidence of that. It's yes, it has very that, much. Same, that same spirit. I agree. As we'll come into when talking about the album, that sense of humour 
is carried on maybe subconsciously, it's just the way how I interpret it, with the music on the album. I actually have a good segue, I guess. We're talking about Elephant Parts. One of the main comedy collaborators for that project was his friend Bill Martin, who goes all the way back to the 60s, who you know kind of was kept in the whole monkey's sphere as somebody that Mike was creatively felt connected to. And as I mentioned earlier, when I said his name, he wrote the song Door Into Summer with uh, Monkeys producer Chip Douglas. So, you know, even when Mike was in the Monkeys, he knew that he wanted to keep people around him who he connected to creatively. And that includes first national band bass player John London, who moved to Los Angeles with Nesmith. They were friends before Nesmith started playing folk songs as Michael Blessing before he came to be in the Monkeys. And, you know, Nesmith kept Kept John London involved. He played on some Monkeys tracks. He was Mike Nesmith's stand-in on the television show. He knew that this was the guy that he wanted to work with, so he just kept him around the whole time. And then when the Monkeys were done, the two of them were in the first national band together. If, if we take a break, that's fine, but we can take that previous conversation about him looking forward and we can attach it to how he formed the first national band when we come back from break. All right. Okay. You're listening to episode 142 of Love That Album. Morris here and John over there. We'll be back in a moment. Michael Nesmith. Is he putting us all on? He claims his three albums, Magnetic South, Loose Salute, and Nevada Fighter, are a trilogy, a saga of the Old West. He says the tip-off to the trilogy is the songs on the second side of each album. So what does it all mean? Nesmith says it's about what it's about. Drifting along with the tumbling tumbleweeds. It's worth finding out for yourself. Magnetic South, Loose Salute, and Nevada Fighter, a trilogy by a cowboy for today's America, Michael Nesmith, and the First National Band. Available all at once or one at a time on RCA Records and Tapes. And we're back. Joe and I are now going to actually talk about the album that this podcast is advertising, Magnetic South. We've had a lot of monkey talk and country rock talk to this point, but let's actually sort of go into talking about the album itself. Now, before we went to the break, you made a nice segue into uh, the first national band. So please continue that line of thought. Nesmith, even during his time in the Monkees, he was figuring out what was going to come after. And I talked about John London, who plays bass for the first national band and how he and Mike had the relationship you know that preceded the monkeys so Mike kept him around John Ware who plays drums Mike Nesmith while he was in the monkeys he produced it was just a single they didn't put out a full album but he produced a single for a band called the Corvettes and John Ware played drums John London played bass with Mike Nesmith producing for this band the Corvettes ended up being kind of the touring backup band for Linda Ronstadt after this she split with the Stone Ponies you know of course she was doing Mike Nesmith's songs. She did Different Drum, of course, was a huge hit, but she also did some of Shelley's Blues, which is one of my favorites. And then OJ Red Rhodes, he was actually a Wrecking Crew player. Not every song requires a slide guitar, so he's not as prominently you know, mentioned when you talk about the Wrecking Crew as some of the other people were, you know, the Carol Kay and the people who played on almost everything. OJ Red Rhodes was a Wrecking Crew player. So, you know, with the Monkees, that's how Nesmith got to know him. And OJ Red Rhodes before the first national band. He played on Monkey songs. He played on Beach Boys songs, The Birds, 
Spanky and Our Gang, the Carpenters. James Taylor. Yes, indeed. Mike basically had the guys around him who were going to be the first national band before the Monkees even had come to a close. So it was a very natural step forward. I read an interview with John Ware and he said that he basically had to talk Mike into, not like twisting his arm, but with Mike sort of not sure what he was going to do next, but he knew he wanted to buy his contract out from the monkeys. So John Ware said, you really need to start a new band. You need to just hit the ground running with this. And as you say, the start of the first national band, they went and rehearsed and recorded. They put together a whole bunch of songs for this first album. And I sort of came to my mind that in a way, yes, in a way, no, Nesmith was sort of like the George Harrison of the monkeys because the way that it doesn't work is because Nesmith was probably like the prominent one, the one who wrote the most songs for the monkeys within the group anyway. But given that George Harrison and All Things Must Pass was like him basically spewing out every song that he'd written during the Beatles' time in India that Lennon and McCartney had basically gone and said, no, not good enough, not good enough. (laughs) So that first album, it's not completely all old songs that he'd written for the Monkees, but at least half that album, plus a couple of covers, doesn't really leave that much room for post-Monkees, specifically written for the first national band album type of songs. Yeah. One of the great things about this first album is that one of the things that they always say about bands and their sophomore effort is that you have your entire life to write your first album and then, you know, you have, what, six months to write your second album. Well, Nesmith had his entire life plus several years of other people's money to spend. (laughs) Several years of screen gems behind him funding everything that he wanted to do just for him to experiment, for him to meet other musicians. You're right. A lot of the songs that ended up on this album were stuff that he had been working on all along, but he had resources that most people could only ever dream of having in order to prepare for this first record. In a way that seemingly at the time worked against him, though, because John Ware mentions in this interview once again that I've read where they did a show where they were supporting the Flying Burrito Brothers and it's not like the Burrito Brothers were massively popular or anything like that but within the musician community they had some level of credence and it was Graham Parsons new band as it was and it had a bird in it and it, it it had that level of credibility and they did this gig with the Flying Burrito Brothers and they had obviously not been listening to the music they'd just been listening listening to the hype. And they thought, a monkey making a country album? (laughs) Forget that. And they were figures of scorn. They were mocked while they were on stage. I'm sure that there were musicians who had really listened to those monkeys records and thought, Nesmith as a songwriter, man, that guy's got some chops. I mean, I don't know how much was known at the time about to the general public about how much the band had played on their own album. I mean, I believe that Nesmith had said just to piss off Don Kirshner, hell, we're not even playing our own instruments and that's why they went on to do headquarters but I don't know how much of that was known by the wider population but musicians and songwriters who should have known better like the Flying Burrito Brothers didn't give them their due at the time I'm fairly confident to say that people nowadays both musicians and music fans would say man those those albums are pioneering if not the first coming back to the country rock thing but certainly were really quite pioneering and terrific in their own right and Nesmith deserves that level of respect indeed but I mean just speaking as an entertainer it's always the most fun to recount the story 
stories of the people who threw beer bottles at you? Chicken wire? I'm certain that there that there was a mix. You know, I'm certain that there were people who were paying attention to what was going on musically or were at least curious enough to listen. It's, it doesn't make it as entertaining a story to tell when you're in an interview, though, when you can also tell the stories of the people who were booing you. I mean, certainly the Beatles admired the monkeys. They hung out socially when the monkeys were in London, and they certainly admired them as, as comic performers. John Lennon called the monkeys the Marx Brothers of the 60s. If somebody was buying these albums because, you know, he basically he got to make three right off the bat, the three first national band records, and then got to make Tantamount to Treason. And it wasn't until after that fourth record that the suits at the label came to him and said, you know what, you're not giving us any hits here. You know, we can't let you keep doing this unless you provide us with some hits. And that's why he named the fifth album and the hits just keep on coming, <laughs> which is, you know, certainly his sense of humor. But really, it took the, until the fourth album before, you know, he started getting complaints about not selling the numbers that the label was hoping for. But he wouldn't have gotten to four albums if, there, if he wasn't selling some. He had to have been getting respect from certain corners of the world all along. But it's certainly much more fun to talk about the people who threw things and booed you. So, which is absolutely part of the truth, I'm sure. But it's the part of the truth that's more fun to talk about. But it's, of course, it goes in contrast and would make a wonderful reading in a biography or watching in a biopic that a man who had all these resources, as you talk about, he wasn't starting from the bottom up. He, yeah. he had all these resources and yet it was almost as if he did have everything against him because he was a TV musician, not the real musician. He was a humorist. He was an actor, not a real musician. So he had the resources because of what the monkey time had afforded him, but musicians and maybe the perception. Can you imagine what someone who'd gone and bought the birds, the bees and the monkeys would have thought, oh, Mike Nesmith's got a new album and putting on Magnetic South on for the first time and sort of wondering, what is this? It's monkey-esque melody-wise, but not necessarily arrangement-wise. Yeah, but we were talking about favorites before, and I figure, you know, what would the reaction have been to somebody whose favorite was Davey? And say, well, I love the monkeys. My favorite's Davey, but I love the monkeys, so I'll check out this Nesmith album. They right. might have thought one thing about it, but if somebody's favorite was Mike all along, I'm sure that they were thrilled to finally have an album where <laughs> You know, where they didn't have to listen to any Davy songs. So we were talking in the first half about Calico Girlfriend being a calling card. And this does set the tone for it being something different, not necessarily being typical of the rest of the album, neither musically or lyrically wise, because as given some indication, I see this as an album of Shaking the Fist or an album of Love's Regrets. But I do love that this song, it starts out as a samba, then you have this instrumental middle eight, which goes yeah. a little bit more jazzy in that regard. He's basically showing, I can do anything. I choose to do this, but let me show you. You think I don't have the chops? I've got musicians. We have the chops. We can do absolutely anything. Red Roads on this particular song is front and center of everything. <laughs>
whole notion of it being a statement of intent. I really do like how that how the album starts off with that. It's a, a lot of fun. I also wanted to put forward the notion, see where you feel about this. And this doesn't apply to every song on the album, and maybe this is doing Mike a disservice, but I sort of felt like the first few times that I listened to this album, there was still the notion in my head that it was Mike not necessarily the monkey, like as Mike with the wool hat, but Mike the humorist. And he always had that in him. You look at footage of him from the last few years, people have taken with their phones at First National Band's concert, and he's being funny. And we're talking about elephant parts before, and he's being funny. Being a humorist is something who he is as much as being a musician is someone who he is. And listening to some of the songs on this album, not all, but some of the songs on this album, I still sort of get the impression that even though it's a straight ahead song, but I listen to his voice and I'm thinking he's probably saying, singing this with a bit of a smirk. And once again, that might be me doing a disservice to him. I don't think so. I think he absolutely knows what he's doing at all times. And I think that he's very aware that he can draw a bit of mystique. His lyrics in many ways are very philosophical. And then he's also got humor. He'll blend back and forth in such a way where you're left not knowing if he just sang something with deep meaning behind it or if he's just pulling your leg. I think that's fully intentional on his part. Uh, I think that's kind of part of his mystique. And I think it's part of how he keeps himself humble as well. Like any of us, he does have certain grand thoughts, but he's not the kind of person who's going to put his grand thoughts out there only on a grand platform of listening to my wisdom. I think he's aware that a lot of what we think of as our own wisdom often isn't quite wise, but it might be. <laughs> so, I think that's just kind of one of the core elements of how I think of him as an artist is blending this philosophical approach with his humor. It's not always obvious and you might play to someone else who say, I don't get what you're saying about it. And certainly if someone who's not aware of anything else that he's done except the first national band album, and there's no one who fits that description, but yes. but you would say, hey, you, to someone who was uh, younger, had never seen the monkeys and just put this album in front of them, they may not get that and yet maybe. So an example of this is probably the most well-known song from this album, the song Joanne. Her name was Joanne and she lived in a meadow by a pond. And she touched me for a moment with a look that spoke to me of her sweet love. I tried playing this to my wife, Joanne, who's actually, I think last night she said to me, all right, play it to me again. <laughs> and she was very kind to me and letting me play it all the way through and then said, yep, yeah, no, nah, that's, that's it. <laughs> well, I think part of it is like, it is a little bit frustrating to have a song that people want to tell you should be associated with you. I don't know how many times in my life I have had people ask me where I'm going with that gun in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might've even done it on our first, connection. I, they all seem to think that they're the first person to have thought of it. So I, I can kind of feel for her on, yeah. on this, you know. <laughs> no, look, I think for her, it's she has no idea about how famous the song was and doesn't care that it's done by an ex-monkey who you know, she really likes. But it's just this pedal steel 
No. Okay. The pedal still bothers her more than the yodeling? The two elements. Actually, just so, well, here we go with another aside, but there are some songs which have no yodeling, don't have a particularly country-esque singer and none of that sort of thing. But I think the thing that bothers my wife, Joanne, about country music is the bass lines. It's the, oh. the boom, 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 boom yeah. to a lot of country songs might have, the alternating bass line sort of thing. Anyway, we digress. Uh, well, I digress. So I had this feeling in my head for a couple of reasons about Joanne, which is on the surface, it's not a humorous song. It really is a song about a love that could not be. But I just hear his voice and on that song, I'm thinking, yeah, that's Mike Nesmith, the funny guy. Uh, I'm not taking this terribly serious much as I love, love, love this song. But its place on the album is the second last thing that you hear on side one of the record. And then the, the next thing that you get is the first national band rag. my friends we'll be back right after you turn the record over The band's playing this really up-tempo. Well, howdy, friends. Uh, we've come to the end of the of side one, and we can continue on with this music if you go and change the record over. And it's, that's really a bit of a piss take. And it's uh, no one else would put that after a song like Joanne, except not. I, I got to tell you, preparing for our discussion today, and I started actually looking up the album on the internet and, and reading different things. I only just today learned about the first National Rag, that little bit at the end of side one. I bought this album... It was in the 90s, Nez put out a reissue that he oversaw himself, which was called The First National Band Complete, and it's all three records. Oh, right. On CD, uh, and then also on a long-playing cassette. And because there's no, you don't turn the record over, I suppose that's why he made the decision. I want to assert that this was a reissue that he oversaw. So it's not like somebody else you know, made the decision to pull this, but he pulled it. He, he, he did not include it. It just goes oh. from Joanne right into Mama Nancy. Tuckett. Oh, wow. And I only today found out that, and then I looked it up on YouTube and I gave a listen to it and it's funny and I love it. I, all this time, I never even knew that that was part of this record. I know that when Tom Petty put out his Full Moon Fever album back in the 80s, there's that moment where he covers all bases. He says, this is the point in the album where if you have the record or the cassette, you'd turn it over. Not relevant for you CD people, but <laughs> if you if you have the record, please turn it over now. Uh, okay, now we will continue with the record. I forgot about that bit. Actually, I'd love to know whether that was a thing, whether lots of artists did that. That could be a good all-time top 10, now turn the record over track. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect that might be a little hard up. We might have only got the only two, but who knows. But the position of the first national band rag on the record sort of reaffirmed in my mind that, yeah, you can't always take Mike Nesmith terribly seriously. He's doing everything with a wink and a nod. And then watching this week for the first time the Elephant Parts video, the opening of that. So you got to hear. <laughs> yes. Her name yeah. was Rodan. Her name was Rodan. And she lived in the ocean off Japan. And you 
see the camera pan down to Mike's feet. From the waist down, he's he's dressed as Godzilla. He's even got the tail and everything. When he starts playing, the camera is only from the waist up. And then when it pans down from the waist down, he's he's Godzilla. And then there's like a whole cityscape below him that he starts stomping on. And yeah, that was his biggest solo hit. And he immediately decided to just make fun of it. First opportunity. I mean, I don't necessarily see that on every track on this album, but even less so on the other first national band albums but i think maybe there's as much about him finding his feet it's him saying i'm a musician but you know i'm also a funny guy i'm not exactly on the same page as you are with as the themes throughout okay. the record i see where you're coming from when you talk about regret i find that there's a wistfulness and a nostalgia but i wouldn't describe it as regret thematically and then i'll connect this to the liner notes from that reissue that i got you know where mike nesmith oversaw the reissue and he wrote the liner notes for it. I'm going to connect it to something in there. But thematically, I see it as somebody who is contentedly lost or somebody who doesn't have a place in the world, but not having a place is their place. As much as that seems like a contradiction, but Nesmith's kind of a writer who I think likes to find the truth in contradictions. And when I talk about your place is to not have a place, if you think about people who say things like, it's about the journey, not the destination. And this whole album for me thematically, it's like somebody who's on a journey and he's fine knowing that he's not where he was and he's fine knowing that he hasn't landed on a destination and he's just going to kind of move through it knowing that moving through is what he's meant to be doing. I mean, even in Joanne, I can see where the regret is in that, but he's the man in the song, which is clear from the opening verse. But by the end of the verse, Joanne and the man and the time that made them both run, he's referring to himself in the third person because that's a different person now. He's beyond that and he's moved on and he's somebody else. Even though he is the man from the story in the song, that man is now somebody else. And it's this wistful, you know, kind of nostalgic thing. And there's regret in there. I give you that. But for me, it's more the idea of constantly moving and not moving towards a destination, but all, but not mourning what you've left behind. And in the liner notes for the reissue, he talked about the um, position that he was in. In 1969, 1970, he thought that America was at a point where the culture was forcing itself forward, were his words. And he said that he felt empowered with an objective sensibility because of his position as a television television actor whose star was thankfully fading. He had a certain isolation where like he couldn't just go to the grocery store like anyone else would because he'd be too recognized. But he said that that isolation gave him an advantage to examine America from a corner of the room, is how he says it. When I think of it, it's this kind of idea of this journey. And he's, I, I really feel like you look at this album as a whole, he is kind of looking from the corner of the room and he has his commentary on it. He's very at peace commenting on chaos. I like that notion that he's there as America's commentator and the song which I think definitely personifies that on this album would be Mama Nantucket. Now, 
I just often gone and listened to that song in the background and never really sort of focused on what he was saying. But to me, that's a song that is almost scarily relevant to the last few months of America. I mean, at the time, it could have been a statement very subtly in a way about America's involvement in Vietnam and the protest movement that was going on there. So he sings, oh, I see all the people running, coming from miles around. Everybody's singing a different tune. See them all fall down. It's not him putting a statement in either camp. I mean, you probably know where mm. his sympathies lay, but he says, well, I don't like to quarrel, but what about tomorrow? Will it be the same as the past? I keep on hoping that something will happen and I hope that it happens fast. And every line in the chorus after he finishes yodeling, he says, I love it here on the range. I would love it more if it changed. So yes, he is taking that role of observer of commentator and the fact that he'd done his time in the monkeys allowed him to be able to put that out into the general public is if they chose to listen he had that advantage as he also say he is confident in his own position yeah i guess maybe joanne might be the one moment of regret but and i like where you're going with that as it being i've been there and yes it's wistful i'm at peace but this is what i have to say about what's happened before another a good companion piece for Joanne. In fact, maybe if you were to look at some of these songs as a continual story of each other, Nine Times Blue is to me the same character as the one who's singing Joanne. There's a certain something in the way you looked at me and said you'd stay there, let me know that I was out of line. But I didn't know what else to do and like a fool I tested you by demanding things of you which weren't mine but he's saying, I treated you like crap and I know that and I deserve to have been kicked to the curb. I'm a different guy now, but I'm not begging for forgiveness. I'm just acknowledging that I did wrong by you. There's a self-awareness there and it's one of my favorites. It's also one of the songs that I'm most likely to play when I pick up a guitar just at home in my apartment. If I'm gonna play a Nesmith song, that's one of the ones that I play. I enjoy that song a lot. And it's the kind of thing where like, just think no one else would have written this song. There's a certain something in the way you looked at me and said you'd stay that let me know that I was out of line. And I you know, demanded things of you which weren't mine. It's like nobody's that self-reflective without also being penitent. <laughs> So he's, he's, he's acknowledging his horribleness, but without any penitence, but also without arrogance. Without penitence, without arrogance. Well, there's so many songs out there where there's either, I know I treated you poorly, but take me back, baby, because mm. otherwise, if you don't, I'm going to die. He makes it about himself rather yeah. than about the person who he's supposedly apologizing to. But then you get, I, I guess, really misogynistic songs from the period going back to, you know, run for your life by the Beatles yeah. or you know, John Lennon's moment in which at least he had the decency to say fuck I hated that song A Man Needs a Maid Under My Thumb Under My Thumb is exactly where I was going to go <laughs> right okay so Mick Jagger would never have sung Nine Times Blue yeah just uh, the idea of a song that nobody else would write except Nesmith this this jumps ahead a few albums but one of my favourite songs by him is on and the hits just keep on coming it's The Upside of Goodbye there was an element of majesty in the way the lady said that she was leaving in the morning for the coast. And that goodbye should have brought me pain, but I watched her quickly check the reins of emotions which unloosed a crippled most. Then the thing 
that struck me strangely. There was an element of majesty in the way the lady said that she was leaving in the morning for the coast. That goodbye should have caused me pain, but I watched her quickly check the reins of emotions which unleashed would cripple most. And the thing that struck me strangely was the feeling that I had when she was gone. The few that left before had left me empty, but she left me with a fullness to lead on. It's like the most beautiful song about being dumped ever. <laughs> he wrote a song about somebody who dumped him correctly, like who dumped him in a way that made him feel full and that he's always going to hold on to the race. It's it's um, wonderful, but nobody else would have written it. He's not asking for his black t-shirt back. Yes, no. <laughs> no, nobody else would have written it except for, you know, he's got a certain perspective. But we were talking about theme. I remember on a recent episode, you were talking about Genesis Duke, and there was a point where you had a little, I would not, not necessarily an argument, but a little bit of nitpicking about what is and what is not a concept album. Mm-hmm. And the album that we're talking about today is not a concept album in that it's there's not a narrative. It's not Are the Kinks Arthur, it's not the Who's Tommy. It's definitely was put together to be enjoyed as an album. It's not a collection of 10 songs. Sure. It's it's uh like I said, you know, a lot of the themes in the lyrics to me are like about it being about the journey. And I really feel like he put the album together for the listening experience to be about the journey. I really feel like each song kind of puts you into where you need to be to hear the next song. And it's kind of takes you along with it in the way that depth feels very deliberate and constructed bit by bit. And we're talking about Nine Times Blue. That's one of my favorite songs, but you can't take that song not this recording. You can't take that song and put it on a mixtape because it doesn't have an ending. It, it, it you know goes right into the next song. You can't if you just put that song only. It cuts off abruptly because it was recorded to just keep on going. And several of the songs they kind of end in a way where you're prepared for the next song to begin. To be fair, I guess a lot of albums from that period, maybe the late '60s onwards, where albums became a thing, and I think FM radio was hitting its stride in the US albums became a thing and that whole concept of a whole collection of great yeah. songs was going to be a thing didn't necessarily make them concept albums but it was conceptually meant to be listened to as one thing rather as than as a whole uh, rather than here are the songs that you've heard played on the radio and here's the filler that we do to make the album round out to 35 mm-hmm. minutes and certainly this album whilst not being as you say not like Tommy or like being Arthur or the Village Green Preservation Society but yeah Yes, it is meant to be listened to as a wonderful collection. And I just love being able to go and putting on the record and turning over the side to be able to hear it as a whole. When you get to the end, you get to Beyond the Blue Horizon. When I listen to the album as a whole, when I get to that point, it feels like a closing credits song. Like I've just watched a movie and now the credits are going to roll.
Beyond the Blue Horizon, it has a shit ton of cover versions. You sent me a link and I was supposed to like share my thoughts on it and you thought it was going to remind me of something and it did not remind me of something. And then instead of responding right away, I just racked my brain about it and I didn't come up with what you were trying to get out of me. So I apologize for not responding, but it's because I spent time thinking about it. I was doing a bit of research about the song Beyond the Blue Horizon and the first recorded version, as far as I've been able to sort of determine, was from the American soprano Jeanette MacDonald. As a child, I used to watch with my parents. They loved uh, Nelson Eddy and Jeanette MacDonald, who were the big on-screen couple. They've made all these films together. She's famous for uh, films like Naughty Marietta and Full Moon. But she did the first recorded version. But there were lots of other versions that came out at the time. There's also a German group called The Comedian Harmonists, and I recommend that you watch the film about The Comedian Harmonists, if you can. I saw it when it had its theatrical release. I loved it. Great. Okay, so the Comedian Harmonist did a version of Beyond the Blue Horizon as well, and that's fantastic. The link that I sent you for one of the cover versions of this song was from the singer Frankie Lane. And I'd read something that the composer of an iconic 60s television program, which has been running in multiple franchises through to this day, was inspired by the Frankie Lane version of Beyond the Blue Horizon to write his iconic TV show theme. The composer was Alexander Courage, and the theme was for Star Trek. Beyond the Blue Horizon waits a beautiful day. Goodbye to things that bore me joy. I read this, I thought, hang on, let me go. And you listen to the first 45 seconds or so and think, oh, that doesn't sound anything like, and then it gets into it. First with the rhythm, and then the horn section plays this melody and you think, oh, I completely get it. I sent a note to my sister who I used to watch Star Trek with as a kid. She's a big Trek fan. And I sent her this note and said, have a listen to this and see what it makes you think of. And she wrote back to me like within two minutes saying, oh, you mean the Star Trek theme? Yeah, I knew that. Yes. <laughs> That just absolutely blew my mind that this song, which I'd only ever associated with Michael Nesmith, had a connection to Star Trek. Wonderful. So, so for this song, the whole theme of what we now call Americana is very applicable to this song in my mind more than anything else and cinematically. You listen to this arrangement and it starts off, he doesn't even get to the proper singing of the song until about three minutes into the song. We start off, sounds like the tape recorder is following him around. He's waking up on a new day on the farm. We get the alarm clock ticking in the background. walking around we hear 
the sound of the roosters crowing and we get the sound of the tractor going and he's humming this melody and we get the piano playing wistfully in the background and then the music comes in and that whole notion of the farm and the roosters crowing that's Americana. That's very much what my connection to what became a label was the music in the 90s is the whole broad selection of blues and uh, and country music and old country and whatever, whatnot as being Americana. That's despite the fact that this song has been covered by all sorts of American artists, as I mentioned, Frankie Lane and a version that I really love by Coleman Hawkins, which is jazz, which is that most American of musical art forms. So listening to the song, and I, 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 I keep saying this, I've, I've yet to come to the cinematic reason why, but I just want to set this up. When this song nominally is saying, well, beyond the blue horizon waits a beautiful day, goodbye to things that bore me, joy is waiting for me. And you think, well, this is just a wonderfully happy song. But there's an element in Nez's arrangement, which I don't hear mm-hmm. in any other version of there's something that's going to happen, which goes behind the white picket fence beneath the surface of 1950s America. Something nasty could be happening here. And it is beyond the blue horizon. It goes from, I think, uh, an A major chord to a D minor chord. It's that everything else is major, but you get that D minor chord and we associate that with a feeling of unease, a feeling of dissettlement. to things that bore me. There's that D minor chord again. And then when he gets to some lines later on in the song where he sings, Beyond the Blue Horizon lies a rising sun. That is B minor, D minor, B minor, D minor. And with the combination of those instruments, with the pedal steel, with the arrangement, there's just something that sounds... He's not quite convinced. Like if we're watching a movie and we think everything is sunny, everything is rosy, but you know that there's no story without some conflict, without some contradiction to how the start of the film is set up. And so the film that this reminds me of is David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Heineken, fuck that shit. Paps Blue Ribbon. So, I mean, this is recorded years before Blue Velvet, but we see like the opening of the film, the camera goes around the town and we see the guy on the fire truck and he's on his way back to the station and he's waving at the camera and we get the children crossing the road with the guy with a lollipop uh, helping them cross the road and it's just idyllic life in this little out of the way American town but then we see the father of the main character played by Carl McLaughlin having a heart attack while he's watering his lawn and everything still seems idyllic and then the camera goes underneath the surface and we see the dirt and we see the worms and we see this is not picket fence America that we're being sold to in 1950s films or TV show this is not the Andy Griffiths show there's something nasty coming on and we get Frank Booth and we get the, the severed ear found in the field. And this is the antithesis of all that we see in the first 60 seconds of that film. But everything sort of, if you haven't seen the film, sorry, spoiler alert, Dennis Hopper <laughs> is the bad guy's cop it, and we get 
Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern at the end of the film, and they're looking at the bluebird of happiness and everything is seemingly going to be beautiful in their world and it's going to be ideal and idyllic. But we've seen enough in the last hour and a half to two hours of Blue Velvet to know, no, that's not what life is like and it's not what life is like in this town. There may not be a Frank Booth anymore, but there's going to be something below the surface that's going to be subversive, that's going to take us away from this ideal setting. And listening to this version of this very Americana song made me think of Blue Velvet. And I don't know whether other people out there thinking you're reading way too much into this. It's just a great song. But that's what I do. If I don't do that, I don't have a show because I like to extrapolate. But that's what this song reminds me of is Blue Velvet. We get those minor chords and we think beyond the blue horizon, everything is going to be great. But with those minor chords played in that fashion, I'm not quite convinced. And I'd love to know whether Mike Nesmith at the time saw, I mean, obviously there was no Blue Velvet film at the time, but whether there was something, whether he was saying the the astute listener will hear this song and know that, yeah, not everything is going to be right. It's what we make of it, but be prepared for the shit as well as the joy. It's funny to hear you go through all that and realize that I kind of had a very similar reaction to it when I get to the end of the album. Similar, not exactly the same, but I think when I talk about you know how I interpret it all, I think it'll be amusing to you to see that we're we're kind of coming to similar conclusions. For me, like I mentioned, it's like closing credits song of a movie. And well, what kind of a movie is it a closing credits song for? If for me, it's like the kind of movie where I talked about he's philosophical and humorous, and he does it in a way where you're actually not sure what you're getting. Are you getting his philosophy or are you getting his humor? And that kind of puts you at the season a little bit. And I think about the kind of a movie where the characters don't really know what their reality is. And the audience actually doesn't know what the reality is. And then at the very end of the movie, you get some realization. And just as the closing credits roll, you, the audience, are left like, oh. This idea of finding happiness and it's not real happiness. It's a happiness someone has imposed upon you. Like the lobotomy at the end of Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. Or the reprogramming at the end of Clockwork Orange. And the prior to Blue Horizon is the only other cover on the album, One Rose, which is just a perfect country performance of a country song. So blue, so lonesome too, but still true. Prior to One Rose, you're going through this kind of dreamlike journey with them. And then this dreamlike journey that makes its own truths here and there, all of a sudden you're settled on this, I don't want to say cookie cutter, it's, it's just, it's very well done. I enjoyed listening to One Rose, but it's just so perfectly country after this journey of not sure where you're going. And then when you follow that up with this almost like waking from a dream. You even get the alarm clock before Beyond really starts. So it's like, first you enjoy the perfectness of One Rose, the perfect happiness of it all. And then just like you're watching a movie where you realize that this happiness is constructed, you know, it's not genuine. And you have that moment of, whoa. And when I say that it feels like a closing credits song, the movie that I would most connect it to as far as that closing credits moment, you already, you know, shouted out Brazil. Yes. 
when you get to Beyond the Blue Horizon on this album, for me, it feels like getting to the closing credits of Brazil, which used the song Brazil, which Nesmith actually covered on his 1992 record, Tropical Campfires. Which uh, he's you know knows so much about music and you know he might have felt connected to that song from childhood, but I don't know maybe he felt very connected to that movie. I don't know, but it has a Brazil feel to me when we get to the end of this record, and that's another part of the reason why I say that it's you know maybe not a concept album, but if you'll accept concepty as an adjective, it's concepty. It's like I feel like I've been on one journey with twists and turns and revelations. You know, if I listen to it nonstop, it comes down to Mike Nesmith saying, I'm not going to impose a story on you. These are these songs you read into it how you see fit, but I'm going to give you the mood. And you said it perfectly there saying that we have this dreamy sequence. And then when we get to be on the blue horizon and he's out of the dream, it's like, well, you have your new day ahead of you. As I've already gone and mentioned with those minor chords, it says, well, you know, just be careful out there because this is no longer your dream. This is reality. You might have a bright day ahead of you, but there's always something waiting to get in your way. For me, it's like if there's a character who you're watching, like you're watching a movie, like I said, I have a cinematic uh, experience. If there's a character, then that character's experience ends on one rose and beyond the blue horizon is for you the audience to reflect for you for you to have that moment of oh that character thinks he's gotten to an end but we realize that that character isn't where he thinks he is yeah i kind of get excited talking about it it's you know when i get to the end of this record it really just has an effect musically the album had to end with that song thematically but also in the dreamlike substance and beyond the blue horizon says right the record is finishing here but what happens after that is your own journey. And yet, in a way, what would have been possibly a nice hard ending to the dream would have been the song that comes two songs before Beyond the Blue Horizon, which is Hollywood. talking about film and David Lynch film and Terry Gilliam film and they're both creators. Dreams are a strong part of what they do but Hollywood says yeah we know it's disappointing it's a dream factory it's manufactured and Hollywood which starts off sounding like one thing and ends off sounding like completely another it starts off sounding like well country rock and then ends up going to a very psychedelic place I don't think they even know what they do. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's Nez himself doing the guitar solo on that. And when you say that it changes we mean like from one line to the next and then back. If people who are listening to us discuss it who have not listened to the album, they might think, oh, you know, they've heard songs that start one way and then end another way. But this song, Hollywood, is a back and forth, back and forth. It's right. kind of 
has you on a yo-yo. Almost like a conversation, I guess, musically yeah. conversation. It starts off maybe a little bit sinister, very uh, minimalist, and then the band kicks in for the second part of the verse or the next verse, and then it goes back to the sinister thing. And then mm-hmm. just the end, it's almost like as much as the first national band goes to a wig out jam, that's what they end up with. This really is almost autobiographical. These things I think I knew, I guess they're really old. It seems I've done them all before. And this is actually something that he wrote and put on a monkey's record. Well, what was intended for a monkey's record, I think it was meant to be for the monkey's present, but ended up being on Missing Links. That was one of those, get rid of those country songs, Mike. These things I think are new. Of course, those Missing Linkets albums didn't come out to the 80s. So like at the time, even though some of these songs had been recorded during the Monkees time, fans wouldn't have had any way to listen to them. Right. When a fan went out in 1970 and bought Magnetic South, this was the first time that they're getting to hear these songs, even if they had been recorded during the Monkees time. I'm so glad that we have those versions to make reference to, but undoubtedly mm. in my mind, Hollywood has more of a potency in the version that it does. You know, going from a bit of the country feel to a bit of the wig out psychedelia feel. The Monkees version, or the version that's on that Missing Links album under the Monkees moniker, which mm. was all done by Nashville session musicians, sounds out in that country. And the lyrics... I mean, I guess it's in, autobiographically, it's him saying, right, I'm done with being manipulated by Hollywood. So it sounds like an all out country record. But in the first national band version where there's some country and there's some psychedelia, it's him saying, I can do a bit of this and I can do a bit of that and I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to be your puppet anymore. For me, it's a cinematic journey that the album takes me through. It's that chaoticness of it is important. If you talk it being like Lynch-esque or Gilliam-esque, you know, as we kind of touched on before, before, I mentioned One Rose as being a false happiness, a constructed happiness. Uh, and I likened it to the idea of the character getting a lobotomy at the end of the film. Well, what are the scenes that come immediately before that? And Hollywood would be one of the scenes that comes before that. There's this chaotic sense of questioning, are there dark forces can, kind of controlling things? And it ends with, goodbye, cruel town, you've been a fair-weathered friend. Now I'll go where things don't start just to end. And then goes into Keys to the Car, which is very countryish. But how does Keys to the Car end? It ends with, they want only friends they can have on their terms. If you say you're their friend, I'm afraid you will learn. They want only friends they can have on their terms. But the love that you show them will give you an age. For authority is more than we're in a badge and but the love that you show them will give you an edge for authority is more than wearing a badge. So it's very Terry Gilliam to me when you put it all together. And you, it, when the character has these realizations that there's something sinister going on, and then all of a sudden it's one rose, which feels very fabricated happiness. Everything that leads up to it, that's what makes Beyond the Blue Horizon feel like a credits song to me. Okay, so film ends at one rose in the best yeah. Gilliam tradition. And you mentioned before Clockwork Orange, I mean, it has 
that end, he's gone back to his original self. Yeah. And we end up with the closing credits of Singing in the Rain, which takes on more of an irony yes. than it otherwise would have. So one thing that we sort of haven't spoken about, and I haven't mentioned it too much in other shows, but the way how you've sort of gone and brought to this conversation is sequencing. Also, what we are talking before about albums being definitive statements, not just necessarily because it's Tommy or it's Arthur where there's a very definite story, but there's something in the musician's mind that says these songs need to be heard in this order, Mm -hmm. in their completion. Don't just go for the great pop single here. It's not a collection of songs. This is a story. It might not be a story as you read it in a novel, but I'm definitely trying. And you can interpret it any way you like, but I really like where you've gone with this and it does present itself in that fashion. I mean, we haven't had this conversation as track by track to define that because that's not what we do. But I think we've had, uh, I've really enjoyed having this more broad conversation which can refer to these themes and bring the whole umbrella of sequencing and how this sort of plays itself out. Did you have any final thoughts? Honestly, my final thought is, wow, how's Morris going to get this to his dependable 90-minute episode? I'm going to be so excited to hear how you edit all of this together because we've really had a time. Enjoy, I've enjoyed this. This has been fun. Unlike some shows, I don't set myself a time limit. listening audience who may not have heard the first national band or any of those albums which were called the red white and blue trilogy i'm not sure if that was part of nesmith's original plan but maybe because they're all released in quick succession maybe it was if you haven't heard this we'd urge you to search these albums out i mean magnetic south is the one that we focused on but they're all terrific there's a once the first national band stopped being a thing there he started up the second national band kept red roads but different rhythm section and that one certainly has more of a rock feel than the first three albums do and I only listened for the first time this week on Your Urgency Joe to uh, and the hits keep on coming and instantly regretted that I had not sorted out before I need to go buy myself a physical copy of that it is so good and that's pretty much just him and Red Roads pretty much just the two of them the entire album some great composition skills and I think I might have mentioned that before with Crippled Lion but there's some moments in there which sound a little bit McCartney-esque to me on that album but when it ultimately comes down to it I also tend to think of wow this sounds like a song that Nesmith could have written in his time in the Monkees and I don't mean to sort of keep coming back Monkees, Monkees, Monkees but it's just more about the fact that he had a distinctive style he could do other things arrangement wise but the mark of a great songwriter to me is where you hear something and you say yeah that sounds like a Mike Nesmith song and I don't know how many songwriters that you can speak of sure you can say right well that guitar sound belongs to Richard Thompson or this sounds like whoever but the fact that you can say a songwriter no matter who plays it you'll be able to recognise that songwriter that's a mark of a master craft all I can end off with is saying I'm envious that you got to see the first national band. Obviously, it's not the same lineup. Red Roads died in the 90s, didn't they, I think? Yeah, the, well, the only person that's still alive today is John Ware, and he did not participate. But the reason why Nesmith used the name First National Band for those tours was to make it clear that that's the era 
that he was focusing on. He did other songs that didn't come from those albums, but the focus was on those songs and on those arrangements. This is not a monkey show. Now, he had his sons play in that Redux version, didn't he? Jason and Christian, yeah. All right. At this stage, I want to just say thank you so much for being a part of this. Having this conversation has been an absolute thrill. And if you want to come back, my door is always open to you. Okay. Um, I'd love to have you back because I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Where can people find your music and where can people keep up with you on, on the socials if they so choose? Really, I my social media is social between me and people who I actually know. And it's because of how long this Brandy Sidecar project has, has been taking me. I spent a good period of time trying to have a, a toe in a whole bunch of different things. You know, I, I moved to Los Angeles and I was simultaneously wanting to work as an actor and wanting to do stand-up comedy shows and wanting to write and wanting to do music. It was an exciting time, but I felt like I could never get one thing off the ground. So when I decided to focus on the Brandy Sidecar, I decided I'm really going to focus on this. And since I don't really have product yet, other than that three song EP, there's not a central website to go to. I let my comedy website, I let that expire. So I'm sorry, folks, but you, but you search my name on iTunes, you'll find the comedy album and you'll find the Brandy Sidecar album. Brandy Sidecar does have a Bandcamp page. The comedy stuff does not. But you know, wherever you buy music, you put my name in and you'll find the comedy stuff and you'll find the Brandy Sidecar stuff. Just remember Sexy Sexy, that's the comedy stuff. Brandy Sidecar, that's the, the songs that I kind of draw from you know, the old you know, 1940s style. Right. As soon as it ever it is that you do get that album out, we'll be posting it here. Oh, believe me, I will be letting everybody know. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to get a further dose of uh, Joe the Conversationalist, please subscribe to All Time Top 10. I mean, I'm hoping most of my listeners already are fans of the All Time Top 10 podcast. I think that's actually going into its 10th year or 10-year anniversary as well uh, this year. And I've been on board as a listener and uh, right from almost the word go and uh, been happy to join with Ben over the years as a co-presenter, really enjoyed that. But yes, uh, Joe has had many instances of... Uh, episodes with Ben over the years and you should go do yourself the proverbial favor. I mean, I wish that all Ben's episodes were on iTunes. I think after 30 episodes or so, he has to put them on Mixcloud or something. Let me give um, a little extra special plug for Ben because he's a friend to you and a friend to me. And I think that some of your listeners have already checked him out. And those who haven't, I think will enjoy checking him out, checking out all time top 10. He started a Patreon to bring a little and bring a few bucks in each month. And if you you are a patron, you get a bonus episode every month that you can only get if you're one of the Patreon subscribers. And I am very, very flattered that he has been calling our most recent Patreon episode that I did as a guest, he has been calling it the best ever episode of all time top 10. This was two months, three months ago, we did top 10 songs that changed the world. And Ben has described it as the best episode. And you can only hear it if you subscribe as a patron, if you go to his all time top 10 Patreon and you know you sign on for $2 a month and then you get to hear the bonus episodes and you get to know that you're supporting the podcast and you, that's the only way you can hear the episode that he calls the best episode ever and I am very honored to be the guest on that episode and I, I'll tell you I think it's a pretty damn good episode. So even if you decide well not ready for this Patreon thing but there are still many fine episodes in the all-time top 10 canon which you can find the previous 
30 episodes you can get from iTunes like you can for any other episode or whatever your podcast catcher of choice may be. But if you want to go beyond the previous 30 or so episodes, you have to go to mixcloud.com forward slash Ben Eisen, I think. There may or may not be a better way to do it now. They have finally just launched their own website, which I'll ask you to put in later because I can't remember it off the top. I think it's alltimetop10pod.com. Yes, You can is. put the correct one in. Okay. So he that's basically your go-to spot to find where all the links are to everything else. So if you go to the website, you'll find out how you can listen to new episodes. You'll find out how you can listen to the old episodes. You'll find out about the Patreon. That's the one-stop shop. Indeed. All right. So just quickly, what is happening for the next episode? That will be episode 143, due out in March of 2021. My special guest will be someone who I've wanted to have on for a couple of years. This is a, a lady called Sarah Carroll. If you live in Melbourne, then you know who she is. Sarah is the wife of the sadly departed Chris Wilson. We lost him about two years ago, but Sarah is a magnificent songwriter and musician in her own right. And Chris and Sarah's two sons, Fenn and George, are also brilliant multi-instrumental musicians and great songwriters and singers. Sarah has just overseen the re-release of what I think is one of the greatest live records of all time, Chris Wilson's Live at the Continental. And if you lived in Melbourne at the time, you saw Chris Wilson at the Continental at some spot. But this was one night that got recorded, I think by Triple J. And anyway, I would let Sarah tell the story about how that actually got to be recorded and how that became an album. But she has overseen the re-release of the album. It was originally one CD. It's now been re-released as a two CD set with a whole chunk of bonus cuts. And one of the things I want to discuss with her is how these bonus cuts really change the flavor of the overall show. I'm not saying better or worse. It's just, it changes the flavor. So I really look forward to talking with her about that album, about Chris's legacy, but we'll also be doing plenty of talk about her own work with Git, her band, The Left Wing, and about George and Fenn's own work. So this will be something of a Carol and Wilson family dynasty conversation. Immensely looking forward to having her on the show. She's a great conversationalist. Yeah, that'll be uh, episode 143 of the show. Once again, we are proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network all music podcasts all the time so with that once again thank you joe for being a part of this episode i am very happy to have been able to do it thank you for having me and thank you out there listeners for uh, tuning into this show please let people know that we exist and just really above everything else just be nice to each other what the world needs now <laughs> is just to be nice to each other because well we've gone through some pretty traumatic months and there have been some improvements in the world, but there's a lot of horrible things up on the horizon. Beyond the blue horizon could have been written for this time. You know, be nice. With uh, the minor chords. With the minor chords. <laughs> uh, with Red Rhodes playing them sinisterly on his uh, pedal steel. Until next month, all the best. Cheers. So
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 